This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Yam Basic Podcast. Today we're going to be doing a big podcast on the topic of pulmonary embolism. This podcast has been a long time coming for a few reasons. The biggest reason is that the diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary embolism is a rapidly evolving field fraught with lots of controversy and opinions, so I guess I subconsciously stayed away from it during the first two years of the podcast. However, this is a diagnosis that we consider a lot in the emergency department and you need to have a systematic way of thinking about this diagnosis in order to get it right and not cause any unnecessary harms for the patient. In the first installment of this two-part episode, we'll talk about how you decide whether you should work up a patient for a PE and the tests you need to order to do the workup. Part two will focus on how to risk stratify patients with PE and how to give them the appropriate treatment. You will find that every clinician has their own approach and opinions on this complicated topic, so keep that in mind when you're incorporating this into your own practice. While we'll focus on the diagnosis of PE, you can't talk about PE without talking a little bit about deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, since they exist on a continuum. I will do a separate episode on DVT in the future, but just realize that there's a lot of overlap between these two topics. With that, let's get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and the Fort Hood Post Command. Let's start by talking about the definition and pathophys of DVT and PE. PE is caused by a clot that is formed in the deep veins of the pelvis or legs and is traveled or embolized to the pulmonary vasculature. Clots can also be formed in the upper extremities as well, although we worry much less about these smaller clots. However, there are some nuances in dealing with these upper extremity DVTs that we won't talk about here. Let's just focus on lower extremity DVTs because they're a lot more common. When a clot travels through the pulmonary artery, it lodges at whatever is the smallest artery it can fit through. This clot then causes increased pulmonary vascular resistance and a decrease in preload. The section of the lung, which is affected by the clot in the pulmonary artery, cannot oxygenate incoming blood, which leads to hypoxia and chest pain. In addition, the clot causes a mechanical obstruction, which puts stress on the right ventricle, which is upstream from the clot. If enough stress is placed on the right side of the heart, this can cause left-sided heart failure, which can cause hypotension and shock. The bottom line here is that the patient formed a clot somewhere in the deep veins of their low extremities, which then travel to the lungs and cause these physiologic derangements. Any lecture on pulmonary embolism can't be done without at least mentioning the famous Verkaus triad. This is a classic PIP material that will probably help you out on rounds one day, so here it goes. Verkaus triad consists of hypercoagulability, stasis, and vascular injury. Hypercoagulability refers to a condition where the blood is more prone to clot. This can be congenital, such as factor V Leiden deficiency, or acquired, such as oral contraceptives or any kind of cancer. Stasis is exactly that, meaning that the patient is lying still for a period of time. Finally, vascular injury refers to the fact that there needs to be at least some sort of minor trauma or injury to the basement membrane of the veins in order for that clot to form in the first place. However, we can also use this to remember that major trauma also puts patients at risk for clot formation. This also helps explain why kids don't get PEs nearly as much as adults do, because adults have older vessels, which are stiffer and much more prone to vascular injury than kids. While Verkaus triad can help us remember some of the broad categories of things that put patients at risk for DVT and PE, you can't use a lack of one of the triad to exclude a PE or DVT. 
As with any triad created before the time of advanced imaging and lab diagnostics, a lot of these classic presentations are not sensitive enough to catch most people with the actual disease. In fact, as EM cardiology guru Dr. Amal Matu says, the word classic is Greek for about 15%. Now that we have that historical fact out of the way, let's talk about who you even need to consider for the workup of PE. I will do a mini rant here to quickly say that many people have a doomsday philosophy when it comes to PE. They think that the sky is falling and that every patient who has the most fleeting chest pain or shortness of breath needs a massive workup for PE because the presentation of PE are so varied. While I agree that PE is a serious disease, we have to be calm and rational in our testing to avoid unnecessary harms to the patient through exposure to radiation, IV contrast, and anticoagulation, as well as unnecessary costs and ED crowding associated with overtesting. Let's talk about a rational approach to the diagnostic work of PE. Before we talk about the symptoms that should make you suspicious for PE, let's talk about the biggest risk factors. If you're able to keep these risk factors in mind, they will help you pick up the wide variety of PE presentations because you will be able to identify those at high risk. This is not to say that when a patient comes in for an ankle sprain that they get a CT just because they have a risk factor for PE. While that seems like an extreme example, you would be amazed at the ridiculous reasons that have triggered PE workups. The first broad classification of PE risk factors are intrinsic clotting disorders. This includes disorders such as protein CNS deficiency and factor V Leiden. There are many other clotting disorders, but those are the most common. You won't know that patients have these disorders unless they have had a previous DVT or PE and have been worked up for a hypercoagulable state in the past, so you won't know about these disorders unless the patient has a known diagnosis. There are several other risk factors that have to be considered for PE. These risk factors include recent surgery or trauma, pregnancy, oral contraceptive pills, cancer, a history of PE or DVT, and advancing age, especially patients over 60 years old. Patients with a history of autoimmune diseases, especially lupus, are also at high risk for PE. Now that we have those risk factors in mind, let's talk about the symptoms associated with PE. Back to the so-called classic presentation of PE, the classic triads of symptoms of pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath, and hemoptysis were only present in about 2.9% of patients according to one study. Shortness of breath was most common at 79%, and chest pain was present in only 47% of patients. Some patients may even complain of a sense of unease or even an impending sense of doom, and you should be extra worried about those patients crashing suddenly. Patients that present with syncope in the setting of a possible PE are also very worrisome as well and may have a large clot burden. Let's talk for a second about pleuritic chest pain because I think everyone has their own definition of what this means. Pleuritic chest pain refers to sharp, stabbing chest pain that is in a generally broad area that is worse with deep breathing, coughing, or even talking. While not all patients with PE will have this pleuritic nature to their chest pain, it's important that you know what we mean by this. Now that we've talked about the various definitions and risk factors, let's talk about how to approach the work of a PE. The first step is to consider which patients you will even consider the diagnosis of PE. Let's talk first about a concept known as Gestalt. Gestalt is defined as the unstructured estimate that the patient has the disease based on the pretest probability in light of the clinician's clinical experience and the available information. That's a long way of saying that Gestalt is your gut feeling as to whether the patient has a PE or not. 
Let's try to talk about this in light of an actual patient encounter. Let's talk about one extreme of the spectrum, the obvious PE. Let's say that you have a pregnant female with a history of factor V Leiden who just got off a long plane trip with a swollen leg. She is hypotensive, tachycardic, hypoxic with pleurid chest pain, and even has hemoptysis. I'm pretty sure that even a five-year-old child would know that she has a PE, and your gut feeling tells you that as well. Take a step back for a second and ask yourself, how did I know intuitively that she has a PE? The answer is simple. Looking at the entire clinical picture and the fact that this is a podcast on PE, this patient has every risk factor in the book, and the presentation hits all the classic signs and symptoms of a PE. This intuitive feeling is your gestalt, or your gut feeling, about the patient. Believe it or not, this gestalt is a powerful tool in working up patients for PE. We'll talk more about this in a minute. Let's talk about two more clinical situations to really drive this concept of gestalt home. That first patient was clearly at high risk for PE before you did any testing. This is called your pretest probability. Now let's talk about a different patient. Let's say that you have a 20-year-old female who had 30 seconds of chest pain in one small spot at the, about the size of a dime. She has normal vitals, no EKG or chest x-ray findings, no risk factors for PE, and she's texting her BFF Rose on the stretcher with a bag of Cheetos and her legs crossed. Your gut is telling you that the patient does not have a PE, and you are right. This is the other end of the spectrum from the previous patient, but it paints a picture of what a very low-risk patient looks like. Now let's talk about what might be considered a medium-risk patient, although lots of people would probably debate whether this would be a medium-risk patient or not because everyone has a different opinion. But a medium-risk patient may look something like this. You have a 25-year-old female on birth control pills who had some sharp chest pain earlier, but it's now resolved. She's a little tacky at 105, but all of their vitals are normal. So she has a risk factor for PE with her birth control pills, and she has a few historical and vital sign features of PE, but it's far from a slam-dunk diagnosis. One more thing to mention about Gestalt is that even as a beginner, your Gestalt is better than you think it is. There was a study that showed that the pretest accuracy for PE was 71% for first-year residents, 74% for second- and third-year residents, and 78% for fourth-year residents and attendings. So while the accuracy rate does increase with each year of clinical experience, the difference between a first-year resident and an attending is only 7%. Now let's talk about how to use this gestalt to use clinical decision rules or aids to help us decide who to work up for PE. My favorite to use is the PERC rule. I talked about this rule in an essential evidence episode a little while ago. I won't do a deep dive on the PERC rule here, but let's quickly review how to use this rule in your workup. The first step in the PERC rule is to decide that the patient is at low risk for PE. The exact wording is that the patient is such that a board-certified emergency medicine physician would not work up the patient for PE if the D-dimer was negative. Generally, we talk about this being a risk of PE of less than 15%. If the patient is not low risk by your gestalt and falls into the medium or high risk categories, proceed immediately to a CT angiogram to rule out PE. Some experts in PE recommend that D-dimer can still be used in medium and high risk patients, but that is not the current standard practice. We'll talk more about imaging later. So now you have a low-risk patient by Gestalt. The next step is to ask if the patient has any of these seven criteria. The mnemonic for the criteria is BREATHS, B-R-E-A-T-H-S. B is for blood in the sputum or hemoptysis. R is for Rumerosat sat less than 95%. E is for estrogen use to include oral contraceptive pills. 
A is for age greater than 50. T is for thrombosis. So this means either a PE or DVT in the past, or you have a current suspicion of a DVT. H is for heart rate over 100. And S is for surgery or trauma in the last four weeks. If you answer all no, then you can stop the workup without a D-dimer and stop the workup for PE altogether. If you answer yes to any of these criteria, get a D-dimer. If the D-dimer is positive, then get a CT angiogram. If it's negative, stop the workup. You'll notice that these seven criteria overlap a lot of the risk factors and high-risk symptoms that we look for in PE. There's nothing magic about the PERC rule. It just quantified that our gestalt is a lot better than we think it is. If a patient is PERC negative, they have a risk of PE of approximately 1.4%. The reason why we are okay with this level of risk is because the harms from anticoagulation and testing are approximately 1.8%. So if you do CTs on patients who are PERC negative, you will harm more patients than you help. Once again, this wasn't meant to be a deep dive on the PERC rule. If you want a deep dive, you can go back to the Essential Evidence episode on PERC. There are other clinical decision rules, such as the WELL score, the Geneva score, and the revised Geneva score, that are very similar to the PERC rule, but aren't used as frequently in practice in the U.S. I will include links to these rules in the show notes, but I won't talk about them here to save time. Let's talk about the general workup for PE once we have used a clinical decision rule to screen patients. First, keep in mind that most patients whom you work up for PE will have chest pain or shortness of breath, so you're going to want to get an EKG and a chest x-ray. Way back in the chest pain lecture, we talked about using the EKG and chest x-ray for pretty much every patient with chest pain, so PE should be no different. Since EKGs and chest x-rays are quick and easy to get and don't cause any big harms to the patient, don't hesitate to get them right off the bat. Here you're looking for any signs of MI or ischemia on the EKG, and on the chest x-ray, you're looking for anything that could cause chest pain or shortness of breath, such as pneumothorax, pleural effusion, pneumonia, or lung mass to name a few. The next thing to talk about in the PE workup is what labs to get. At a minimum, you'll want to get a CBC, a Chem 10, plus or minus a COAG panel, and any females of childbearing age need an ATG. The CBC will look for an increased white count that may be seen in infection, although this isn't that clinically useful in most situations. The CBC will also look for anemia that could cause chest pain, and it's always good to know the platelet count before you start treatment for a PE. The chemistry panel will check basic electrolytes, but it will also be needed to check the creatinine before giving IV contrast. The coag panel here is pretty useless. It usually comes as part of the chest pain workup set, but it's extremely low yield. You should definitely get it if the patient is already on warfarin, aka Coumadin, but if they aren't, it's extremely unlikely that it will be abnormal, and it's only useful if we actually have to treat for a PE. Finally, all females are pregnant until proven otherwise, and will affect your decision as to what imaging to order, so make sure to get the HCG. We should also talk about the D-dimer and cardiac enzymes. As a quick review, the D-dimer is the degradation products of cross-linked fibrin. So you have formed a clot, and your body is trying to break it down at the same time. This sounds like the perfect test for a PE, since it should be very specific for a blood clot somewhere in your body. However, for reasons that are way beyond the scope of this podcast, this test is sensitive, meaning that you will catch most PEs, probably about 95%, but it's also very nonspecific, 
mean that you will get a false positive rate as high as 50 to 70%. This means that you will get a lot of false positives, which will lead you to exposing a lot of patients to unnecessary radiation and IV contrast. This is why you always want to use a clinical decision rule to help you avoid D-dimers in these patients. Remember in the PERC rule that the only time you need a D-dimer is if the patient is PERC positive for some reason, and then you can use a D-dimer to reduce the number of CTs you perform in those patients who are PERC positive. Finally, should you routinely order cardiac enzymes in patients with PE? On one hand, if you diagnose a patient with a PE, getting a troponin will help you risk stratify them so you can admit them to the right part of the hospital. We'll talk more about that later in part two of this episode. On the other hand, if you don't diagnose a PE, then you've just ordered a troponin on a patient with chest pain. The purists will say that one set is no set, and you have to trend the cardiac enzymes to make sure that they aren't increasing and that this doesn't represent an acute coronary syndrome. Others argue that you can explain in your chart that you don't think this is an MI or ACS, and you'll still be on stable ground medical legally. I have a few thoughts on this issue that I will talk about in part two of this episode. So to review that workup briefly before we talk about advanced imaging for PE, get an EKG on all of these patients, keeping in mind that the most common abnormality will be sinus tachycardia. We didn't mention this before, but don't expect to find the quote classic S1Q3T3 sign in pulmonary embolism. It's only about 10-20% to sensitive for PE. Also, remember to get a chest x-ray to look for anything else to explain that patient's chest pain or shortness of breath, such as a pneumonia, pneumothorax, or pleural effusion. You also want to get labs to include a CBC, chem panel, plus or minus coax. Don't forget the HCG on females of childbearing age. Do not order a D-dimer unless a patient fails the PERC rule first, and don't order D-dimers on patients with medium or high risk for PE. They should go straight to CT scan. If the D-dimer is negative, stop the workup. If the D-dimer is positive, proceed to CT scan. Now let's talk about advanced imaging for PE. CT pulmonary angiogram, aka CTPA, or just CTA, is the test of choice for most patients with pulmonary embolism. CTA is quick and easy to obtain in most CEDs and can diagnose other conditions that can cause chest pain and shortness of breath. The downsides of CTA are the exposure to a large amount of radiation and IV contrast. Most patients who are being worked up for PE will get a CTA as their test of choice. However, there are some patients who will not be able to get a CTA due to renal failure. Pregnancy is another situation where CTA may not be ideal, but we'll talk more about that later. Finally, it is possible that you may have patients who weigh too much to get a CTA. The CT scan has to be timed very precisely to the IV contrast bolus, and if the CT table can't handle the patient's weight, then CTA won't be an option. CTA is great because you will most likely get a yes or no answer regarding whether the patient has a PE or not. There are false positives, and there are some non-diagnostic CTs because the IV contrast bolus can't be timed correctly, but most of the time, you will get an answer. If CTA is not an option, then we have to settle for a VQ scan. I say settle because you need a totally clear chest x-ray to make the test useful, and there are lots of patients who will get an indeterminate VQ scan that will make your life difficult. Since we don't order this test a lot, let's talk about how this test is performed. The test starts with an intravenous injection of radioactive tracer to light up the pulmonary vasculature. This is then followed by the patient inhaling radioactive tracer. 
Once these two separate scans are done, the radiologist compares the perfusion scan with the ventilation scan. If the scan shows an area of lung that ventilates but does not perfuse, this strongly suggests a PE. This is a much less precise way of diagnosing a PE because anything on the chest x-ray makes interpreting the scan difficult. When the VQ scan is read as completely negative, you are all set and can have confidence in the results. However, there are lots of patients with low probability or indeterminate VQ scan results that can put you in a bind. A VQ scan that is read as low probability has a rate of PE of about 20%, which is just not sensitive enough to fully rule out the diagnosis. A VQ scan that is read as intermediate risk of PE has a rate of PE in between 20 and 79%, so that's really not useful to us as well. The bottom line is that VQ scans are only useful to us if they are read as completely negative. Finally, if both the CTA and VQ scan aren't an option for whatever reason, you can do bilateral lower extremity ultrasounds. If you find a clot in one or both legs, then you can assume that the patient has a PE and start treatment since the treatment for PE and DVT is pretty much the same unless the patient is hemodynamically unstable. However, this doesn't tell you how large the PE is, whether anything else is going on that can cause chest pain or shortness of breath, and it also doesn't help you if the study is negative. Let's talk briefly about how to diagnose PE in pregnancy. This is a clinical conundrum because there are concerns about the radiation and IV contrast from CTA harming the developing fetus. There is not a lot of evidence that the IV contrast causes any harm, but the radiation exposure makes us nervous. There are basically two theories in how to deal with the situation. Do the CTA anywhere, or do a VQ scan? Let's go through the argument behind each approach. In favor of the CTA side, the data that we do have says that a pregnant female can get one abdominal pelvic scan during pregnancy and still be well below the known threshold for fetal harm from radiation. Since this is a chest CT, the exposure to the uterus is a lot less. In addition, the abdomen can be shielded, and if the radiologist knows that the patient is pregnant, they can make sure not to scan as low as usual. Most CTAs scan through the liver to make sure that the bases are captured, but this can be adjusted to be even safer for the developing fetus. As far as the IV contrast exposure to the fetus, we don't have any data that says that this is harmful. However, we are unlikely to ever get a satisfactory answer to this question. In favor of the VQ scan, there is good evidence to show that pregnancy causes a higher proportion of non-diagnostic CTA scans because of several factors such as the change in blood volumes and cardiac output that comes with pregnancy. The proponents for this technique say that the possible radiation exposure is a lot less to the fetus. However, one thing to consider is that the radioactive tracer for the perfusion part of the scan concentrates in the bladder, which is right next to the uterus. This can be alleviated by having the patient urinate immediately following the scan. In theory, you could place a Foley catheter to immediately drain that urine, but that seems like an extreme measure to take that comes with it, uh, with its own risks, and I haven't really seen it done before. Whichever method you choose, you need to have an honest conversation with the patient going over the pros and cons of the imaging technique that you use. Keep in mind that PE can be a serious and life-threatening disease in pregnancy, and you just can't blow this diagnosis off because the workup may be difficult. It's probably a good idea to have the patient sign a consent form for either approach. Your institution may already have a pre-printed form for exactly this reason, but you still have to explain the risks and benefits of the imaging to the patient 
in clear and plain language and answer any questions. That's it for PE diagnosis, workup, and imaging. The next episode will cover treatment and disposition PE. Before we wrap this up, let's do a big review of all the big points. First, know the risk factors for PE to include a history of PE or DVT, disorders such as Factor V Leiden, pregnancy, cancer, recent surgery, estrogen use, and trauma. Chest pain and shortness of breath are the most common symptoms of PE, but they may not be seen together in all patients. Before you consider any testing for PE, use a clinical decision rule such as the PERC rule to help guide your workup. Only use a clinical decision rule in patients with a low pretest probability for PE. If the patient has a medium or high risk for PE, go immediately to advanced imaging. If the patient is PERC negative, you can stop the workup without testing. If the patient is PERC positive, get a D-dimer, and if the D-dimer is negative, stop the workup. If the D-dimer is positive, get advanced imaging. Get an EKG and chest x-ray on all patients. For patients that are going on to advanced imaging, you should get labs to include a CBC, Chem 10, plus or minus coags, and an HCG in all females of childbearing age. CTA is a test of choice in most patients, unless they have renal failure, are too heavy for a CT table, or are pregnant. In those cases, VQ scanning is an alternative, but only accept the results if the radiologist reads the scan as completely negative. A low-risk probability scan has a PE rate of about 20%. If both the CTA and VQ scan are not available, bilateral lower extremity ultrasounds can be helpful if they are positive, but they don't help you if it's negative. CTA and VQ scans have pros and cons in pregnancy. Make sure to have an honest conversation with your patient in regards to the risks and benefits and follow your institutional guidelines in regards to your choice of tests and consenting the patient for the scan since they are pregnant. So that's it for part one of the PE episode. Before we go, I want to quickly mention a new phone blog that recently started called EM Trends. This is a blog done by Dr. Steve Schauer, one of my colleagues from residency, and it offers great focus reviews on the latest and greatest EM topics in literature. You can find it at emtrends.org. You can subscribe to email updates or add it to your RSS reader to get updates and analysis on what's trending in emergency medicine. That will wrap it up for now. Part 2 of the PE episode will be released next week. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.